I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. A baby girl was born in a hospital in the Philippines on the 30th of October 2011. However, unlike all the other children born that day, the arrival of Danica May Camacho was witnessed by a crowd of photographers and journalists. The world's media were gathered in a hospital in Manila because this little girl was the 7 billionth person on Earth. She'd been chosen by the UN to represent this significant moment in human history. A baby had similarly been chosen as the 5 billionth person in 1987, and the 6 billionth just 12 years later in 1999. Our population is growing, fast. There are now 7.6 billion people on Earth, and the UN projects that this will be 8.6 by 2030, and nearly 10 billion by 2050. At that point, Nigeria will have a population bigger than the US. It'll be the third most populous country, after India and then China. A lot of these future growth predictions are highly contested, and it's notoriously difficult to predict how populations might change and develop. But that doesn't mean it's something we should ignore. The UN uses media campaigns like the 7th billionth baby to raise awareness about issues like women's rights, sex education, reproductive health, and other important concerns. But discussing an issue like overpopulation can be difficult at best and at worst utterly disturbing. It's a topic that can move worryingly quickly from agriculture, eradicating disease or education to female infanticide, enforced sterilization projects, racism and ethnic cleansing. Even the word itself, overpopulation, is not without problems. I have issues with it when it's applied to the globe. You know, when you say there's overpopulation, full stop. Um, so if you if you say that there there is overpopulation on planet Earth, uh, you're saying that there are too many people on planet Earth. Does that logically then follow that some of the people who are already here shouldn't be here? This is Dr. Ruth Doherty, an expert in the ways in which overpopulation is represented in literature and culture. So, if you agree that there's a surplus, that there are extra people on the planet, how do you decide who the extra ones are? Unsurprisingly, it tends not to be us, but them. The poor, the underrepresented, the voiceless. Even if, in reality, the poorest people on the planet are the ones who consume the fewest resources. Just like those who contribute least to global warming are the ones whose livelihoods are most likely to be affected. This may all seem like quite a modern issue, especially now that our population is increasing so rapidly. But overpopulation as a concept is something that can actually be traced back to one person, Thomas Malthus. It's... It's interesting that the, the word overpopulation actually comes from Malthus, can be traced back directly to Malthus's essay on population. Um, as far back as 1628, the OED records overpopulous, that it, it was an adjective, you know, a place could be overpopulous or a city could be described as overpopulous, but we only get the abstract concept of overpopulation from 1802 is the earliest recorded uh the earliest recorded incident of it. And it was actually Malthus's future wife who uses the word in her travel diary. That's where we get it. Thomas Malthus was an 18th century English writer and cleric whose most famous work, An Essay on the Principle of Population, became one of the most influential works of the age when it was published in 1798. He essentially invented the field of demography, the study of populations. His basic premise was pretty grim. So human population growth um, increases, tends to increase at a faster rate than food can increase. Um, and that the passion between the sexes is necessary and will continue as it has done, that there's passion between the sexes has existed since people have existed and it's a fairly steady rate and it's going to continue. 
Um, Malthus sort of says there's always going to be more people than there is food to feed these people and we can't promise people things that we can't deliver. We shouldn't promise all the people that are here that we can take care of them if there just aren't enough resources to do that. And he he lists, um, he describes it as misery and vice, the things that keep population in check. Um, there are positive and preventive checks. Uh, the positive checks are happen when people outstrip the food supply and they live miserably or they die prematurely. And then the preventive checks are the things that uh, make us decide not to have children. In the second edition, he talks about the concept of moral restraint as another possibility. Um, moral restraint involves a young man deciding he's not going to get married until he has the funds to support a family and he remains celibate in the interim. Probably not the uh, <laughs> most likely, uh, likely outcome, yeah. This is a, yeah, it's not a fashionable idea now, for sure. The essay was at first just a short anonymous pamphlet, but after its reception, he went on a sort of fact-finding trip around Europe and he published a hugely expanded second edition looking at populations all over the world and he backed it up with lots of data. The book was massively controversial. So I think part of the part of the enduring legacy of the essay was just the amount of controversy it stirred up, uh, particularly with the the second edition of the essay. You've got the romantic poets up in arms against it. You've got huge furore in the periodical press, people writing reviews, writing angry articles about pieces of the essay, and so then it's it it was described as a work more talked about than read. It had an immediate impact on politics and social policy. It was a huge influence on both Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace in their development of the theory of evolution. It influenced Karl Marx and numerous economists and sociologists. I mean, you know you've made it when your name becomes an adjective, and Malthusian is a word that people used and understood right through the 19th and 20th century. As with any idea which suddenly takes off and becomes discussed and debated, dismissed and heralded with equal measure, it has tapped into something. Timing is key, and Malthus's essay was published just at the beginning of the 19th century. In fact, 1804 is generally the year given when the world population reached 1 billion. A significant year if ever there was one in population terms. But the essay was also published in London, the biggest city on earth, and the centre of the most populous empire the world had ever seen. So the essay is published in 1798. Um, in 1801, there's about a million people in London. As, as the century goes on, it's, it becomes the largest city that has ever existed. So we're now currently, we're living on a globe where the population is more urban than rural. Uh, by 2050, we're going to have 66% of people on Earth are going to be living in urban areas. And it kind of, it, it begins in the 19th century this sort of movement towards, the mass movement of people towards cities begins in the 19th century, along the same timeline where people are discussing the essay, discussing Malthus's ideas of population. All of these concerns with colonial populations, with urban growth, overcrowded cities, poverty, they all worked their way into the popular culture at the time. Charles Dickens is a particularly good example, given his popularity and huge readership, and he was most certainly influenced by Malthus. With Dickens, there's um, a a Christmas Carol, you have Scrooge saying, you know, why why don't they die and decrease the surplus population? Um, and in hard times, there's the 
Mr. Gradgrind, the, the teacher who wants facts, his one of his children's name is Malthus. And with Dickens, we there's kind of a reaction to Malthus with um, Dickens's large families. Um, in works like Bleak House and Our Mutual Friends, just the, the hugely packed London, how many characters he manages to get into these novels, um, even the, the serial form that they were published in to, to sell to metropolitan readers. So Dickens is packing his stories full of characters who themselves live in a London packed with people, and he's selling these stories in unprecedented numbers precisely because urban areas like London are so packed full of potential readers. But works of fiction can also do what is considerably more difficult in a non-fiction essay. They can humanise and individualise. If we take the example of George Gissing in New Grub Street, um, there's a character who who is waiting until he has enough money to marry, and the, the story really shows the misery of that situation if it takes longer than you expected, and just the sort of the wasted years that that happen in between deciding to get married and being able to get married. And so I think that's one of the things that literature can do is to kind of take these abstract ideas and put a put a face and a name on it. You can dismiss entire groups of people, the poor colonial subjects, whole racial groups, when they're abstract. It's much harder when they have names and faces. This is something that another masterpiece of 19th century fiction does particularly well. H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds opens by looking at how colonial powers were wiping out whole ethnic groups, such as the people of Tasmania at this time. But then Wells turns it back on his audience. But then you have, you know, The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, which explicitly mentions the, the Tasmanians. Humans are on Earth going about their business, and then all of a sudden the Martians come along, and the Martians have a different plan, and... What humans want is not important to what, to the Martians' plan. It's a really fascinating book because of the change of perspective. So we have individual human characters and their narratives and what's important to them. But in the end, the only thing that saved the narrator from destruction by the Martians was, was a microbe, was an infection that kills off the Martians. Mars is overpopulated. There are too many Martians and too few resources. So they've decided to eradicate what is, to them, an anonymous, surplus group of people. Humans. Since Malthus, overpopulation has remained a central part of our culture, on stage, in print, on screen. There are numerous future dystopias where the world has become overpopulated and radical solutions have emerged. The 1973 film Soylent Green is maybe one particularly memorable example. Or then there's the very different type of dystopia in the P.D. James novel, Children of Men, where after a certain date, no more children are born, and so the world's population is slowly diminishing to nothing. There are works in which a future Earth has become so overpopulated and destroyed that the elite live in space or on another planet. The 2013 film Elysium, with Matt Damon and Jodie Foster, uses this idea. So does the Pixar film WALL-E. I love that film. Then there are all those works where a mad scientist figure concludes that people are a blight on the planet, and it's the scientist's duty to radically depopulate the world, like Margaret Atwood's Arcs and Crake, a great novel, or Dan Brown's Inferno. Not so great. I asked Dr. Doherty for her recommendation. Uh, so there was the, the TV series Utopia, which I think was 2013 or 2014, and it's, it doesn't start off as immediately having an overpopulation theme, but gradually as 
season one goes on, you realise that some of the characters involved um, in, in the sort of the shady backgrounds of what's going on are trying to come up with a solution to overpopulation. It's sort of present day UK and it's uh, the first episode as you've seen it, it's super violent. There is a mysterious graphic novel. There's people communicating online and then meeting in real life, wild conspiracy theories. It's kind of, it was it was unlike anything I'd seen for a while. Uh, it sort of just came out of nowhere and was this Technicolor TV show. But uh, but yeah, there there are vaccines that are not really vaccines and it, it becomes about population control. There's a website where you can watch the population grow. It's a clock which just keeps counting upwards as each person is born. It's strangely mesmerising looking at it as it grows and grows. But it's also so abstract. People are just numbers, not individual babies with a life ahead of them, however difficult it may be. Which is why having a seven billionth baby, as arbitrary and symbolic as it is, at least gives a face, a cute little baby face, to the incredibly complicated problems we are encountering as a planet. Thomas Malthus's outlook was pretty pessimistic, and lots of his ideas are outdated today, but he saw what no one else did at that time, and he got us thinking about the population of the world as a whole. And in science and politics, art and culture, the Malthusian imagination is alive and well. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. Let me know if you're enjoying the show. It's on Facebook and I'm on Twitter at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Or you can get in touch on the website where you'll also find links, extra articles, pictures and lots more. It's WTTEpodcast.com, W-T-T-E as in words to that effect, podcast.com. Special thanks this week to Dr. Ruth Doherty. She has written lots about this area and you can find links to her and her work on the website too. Music was by the wonderful Come On Live Long, all from their new album, In The Still. Go check it out, there's a link on the website too. Finally, if you do only one thing in the next fortnight, please accost someone and tell them about the show. I'd really appreciate it. And that's it. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. <laughs>